For Muse by Clio and the Clio Awards, this is Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. This week on Tagline. You love me. You love me not. It was clear that there was a gathering storm. And by the time George Floyd was killed, it was clear that every scrap of work that we had done to that point was useless. We were faced with sort of a reckoning. We were looking at a mirror of what this thing is all about and unable to look away from it. We are not a brand that's going to put up a black box on Instagram and call it a day. Like, we're going all in. If we get this wrong, we will never see the light of day in this business or maybe even just in, like, telling any type of story. It needs to be so undeniable and so unlike anything that you've been spoken to in a way that you don't have an excuse to shut out. It was chill-inducing. I can finally say that I, like, did something with advertising that wasn't just selling a product. Being Black is the revolution. Just merely existing amongst a world full of pitfalls and barriers that just just surviving, just being you, you know, like unobstructed, is, is a triumph within itself. In the wake of George Floyd's death in the spring of 2020, and through the emotional summer that followed, corporate America tried to rise to the occasion, to address in some way the relentless attacks on Black Americans, as well as the country's four-century-long legacy of racism. This was, to say the least, a daunting task, one that for many brands didn't come naturally. And in the end, most struggled to say much of anything beyond a blacked-out square on Instagram. But a few brands, those with a real existing connection to social justice and the black community, embraced the moment for what it was, a long-overdue reckoning and a chance to put work out into the world that was honest and profound on a topic that for once was front and center in culture. On this episode of Tagline, we'll look at the most startling brand statement on race from that charge time, Beats by Dre's two-minute film, You Love Me, from November 2020. We'll speak with the team who created the spot at the agency Translation, how they pivoted from a product campaign, partnered with A-listers led by Melina Matsukas, went down a very different path than they expected to at first, and in the end achieved a remarkable double triumph, celebrating the beauty and resilience of black America while confronting white America for loving black culture while hating black people. I'm Tim Nudd with Muse by Clio, and thanks for joining me as we dig into one of the great advertising spots of recent years and how a brand that in some ways had lost its rhythm found it once again with a new agency and a powerful statement on race. Season two of Tagline is brought to you by GSTV. For those of you who may not be familiar, there's a good chance you watch GSTV every time you fuel up. GSTV is a national video network that's had incredible growth, now reaching 104 million viewers a month with a unique one-to-one moment of attention. Think about it. What campaign would you run with that moment? On Tagline, we're discussing some of the most memorable spots in history. Imagine how those campaigns, or your next one, could be creatively transformed in context on GSTV. To fuel your next creative campaign, visit gstv.com tagline. On November 12th, 2020, five and a half months after George Floyd's death, Beats by Dre, the Apple-owned headphone and audio brand, released a two-minute film called You Love Me. 
that would be celebrated as one of the most artful and provocative ads in recent memory. It opens with Bubba Wallace, the black race car driver, in street clothes, sitting on the hood of a car, then shifts to show two unknown black children as the rapper Toby Nwigwe, in voiceover, reflects on both images, knowing full well the value of each in the eyes of white America. You love me. You love me not. You love black culture, but do you love me? You love how I sound, my voice, these beats, this flow. Not me though, right? You love how I look, my hair, this skin, but me? Nah. We don't get to exist. We're forced to survive. We still fight. We still play while the world burns on fields that ain't even level. We'll get to the rest of the spot and how it was made in a bit. But the story really begins many months before, just before the pandemic, as the New York agency Translation, having won its first assignment from Beats, was eager to refresh the brand, which had lost some of its mojo since its founding in 2006. The business had um, undergone a period of fatigue, right? Just kind of cultural fatigue. And so there was a desire to reset the brand anyway. Chaucer Barnes is CMO of Translation and is heavily involved in the Beats account. Search volume was down. Social conversation was down. They had lost a real grip on being that usurper brand that they had kind of come into fame uh, as being. And so they wanted to get some of that back. Translation's first assignment was a product campaign, a new colorway of the Powerbeats Pro. The agency envisioned bold messaging around the brand being an amplifier of voices. Be heard was the internal strategy line they were using. But then suddenly, everything changed. COVID arrived in March, of course, upending everyone's life. But even before that, a storm was brewing around the escalating violence against black Americans, an age-old story that was making headlines once again beginning with the murder of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia on February 23rd. When Ahmaud Arbery was killed, we put up some kind of tweet or something. By the time Breonna Taylor was killed, it was clear that there was a gathering storm. And by the time George Floyd was killed, it was clear that every scrap of work that we had done to that point was useless. Beats and Translation both felt a deep responsibility to address the events at hand. At Beats, Dr. Dre's founding influence loomed large. This was, after all, one of the few major American brands to bear a black man's name. And there were similar feelings of grief and solidarity at Translation, an agency led by the former Interscope exec Steve Stout that was itself deeply embedded in black culture. So together, they agreed to scrap the product campaign and set their sights on something larger. What exactly that would be, at this point, they didn't know. But among its key architects would be an art director at Translation by the name of Castro de Wush. I think there's like a handful of brands that could sort of like hold that flag and come out with a message that did the moment justice without taking credit in a disgusting way. We knew that Beats was one of those that had the heritage and the namesake of someone that had that sort of defiance in his blood and that ran through the brand and everyone sort of remembers that what's left is like the embers from that, but it was still there. Like the fire was still there. We had to sort of like say something and we were going to take our time to do it right. 
Castro, who is black, a first-generation Haitian-American born in New York, joined the Beats team post-product campaign. He was teamed up with two other creatives, copywriter Steve Horn and art director Rachel Leathers. Steve and Rachel were both white creatives from the Midwest, yet they would be key players on the project as well, even though the black experience obviously wasn't their own. Should we say something about the tragedy of George Floyd's death? Should we kind of put our stake in the ground of of what we want to say as a brand and even as an agency together? We tried to be sensitive, but also kind of understand where Beat sits in culture, sits in the larger discussion, sits in hopefully standing on the right side of history. Rachel recalls an all-agency Zoom meeting shortly after Floyd's death that was very eye-opening for her. A lot of the white folks that I worked with were doing what a lot of other white folks around the country were doing, which was, I'm in shock, I'm in awe, like, how could this happen? Most of the Black people that I worked with were very much like, why are you in shock? This happens all the time. And uh, one of my account managers that I worked with said something that's like really stuck out to me since that meeting, which was, you know, she just kind of raised her hand was like, I wish that we would stop pretending like when we say we're the culture agency, let's like, let's be real about what we're talking about here. We're talking about black culture. So if we're going to be that agency, then let's be that agency. I was really happy that she said that and brought it up because it's true. You know, you can't claim to be supportive of this entire group of people unless you're also like walking that walk. So they set out to walk the walk with their new client and with other creative leaders at the agency, including most notably Jason Campbell, a Jamaican-born art director who made his name on Nike at Widening Kennedy and who joined Translation that summer, eager to restore Beats to its former glory. When they first hit the industry, the work that was being done was pretty powerful. And it, it actually spoke to the black and brown community in a, in a very real way. He was one of the few brands that could do that, where people would actually listen. After Floyd's death, Jason felt a fundamental urge, personally and professionally, to say something. He was living in Portland and taking his kids to the protests there. They were at Burnside Bridge on June 2nd, when everyone lay down for 8 minutes and 46 seconds in silent tribute to Floyd. Jason knew, as well as anyone, that Beats, with its vaunted place in black culture, had to step up with a message that couldn't be trivial. Whether you were black or brown or not black or brown, you were going through the same thing everybody was going through. We were faced with sort of a reckoning. It was a mirror. We were looking at a mirror of what this thing is all about and unable to look away from it. Another key player creatively was Ritesh Gupta, an Indian-American freelancer with a background in journalism and documentary, who joined the team initially to work on the product campaign. And the day I started, you know, we did a call with Steve and it's like, it's out the door. We're starting over. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know? And you're like, what did I sign myself up for? And then we got the new brief. And the new brief was basically like, I want to do an eight minute and 46 second film dropped on George Floyd's birthday. That's it. And you're just like, holy shit. This is, you know, th- this is this sort of ambition where you're like, wow. And the first thought in my head is like, if we get this wrong, we will never see the light of day in this business or maybe even just in like telling any type of story, yet alone like, you know, working for Beats. I mean, we're not even going to sell dog food. That was my first thing that that sort of percolated in the back of my head. And then the second one is like, fuck it, I'm in. This is a huge moment. 
Figuring out the shape of what they wanted to say would, in the end, take months. But the original idea was indeed a film about the black experience in America that would be 8 minutes and 46 seconds long, a reference to George Floyd's killing by the police. In terms of tone, they felt it should be loud and defiant, very much in keeping with protests across the country and the general feeling of outrage. And what this clear kind of social revolution was, was screaming was that there's an entire generation that really wanted to be heard. That was the feeling of the moment. Resistance, active, loud, um, disruptive resistance. The brief that we wrote for our director partners was very fist in air, megaphone around neck, you know, milk jug in hand, because that's the reality we were living and or wanted to live. But then came an unexpected turn as one of the A-list directors they reached out to came back with a treatment that was so different, so surprising, that they were forced to step back and rethink the very core of what it was they wanted to say. Melina Matsukas, the music video director turned Hollywood auteur, released her debut feature, Queen and Slim, to great acclaim in 2019. The film, about a black man and woman who end up on the run after killing a police officer in self-defense, explored the very issues that would flare up nationwide the following year. But when she received the Beats brief, she had a unique reaction to it. With the world gripped in a fever of action and protest, she proposed exploring the opposite. Everyday black lives, transcendent in their ordinariness, their very existence in a country that's oppressed them for generations, a revolution, an act of protest in itself. Molina's treatment was the first one that rejected the very thesis of our brief. Be Heard was very... I uh, had a very aggressive tone. I mean, I mean, the color palette was super aggressive. There was none of that soft focus and pastels that you see in the finished work. I mean, even, you know, the brief itself was, it had very sharp edges and it was very militant. And boy, are we glad in retrospect that we had some fresh eyes on that and that Melina could somewhat see around the corner that all this kind of protest porn, if you will, not only wasn't the right place for brands to occupy, but that it would that it was momentary. Seeing protests in the street, seeing burning buildings, and seeing like the bottleneck of revolution. And for Molina to say it's not all that, it's this is really what we're talking about is is the lives behind the message was such a huge unlock. Being black is the revolution. You know, like just merely existing amongst a world full of pitfalls and barriers, just surviving, just being you, you know, like unobstructed is, is a triumph within itself. And we thought that, you know, that was like a path worth walking. I'm a Jamaican kid from Kingston. Like I've been in this industry 16 years, you know, like I know what it feels like to be in spaces where like I should not be in this space. And so her thesis which I thought was a pretty powerful thesis, was just existing is worth celebrating. And so that became the sort of crux that we built on. 
Not that it was easy, though, at this point, getting the client to change course. Because we've all, to this point, been somewhat invested in the idea of we're going to make, you know, 1984. <laughs> we're going to make the, the preeminent statement piece of the, of the era. And so at first, you know, everybody looks at it and they're like, oh, this is, this is weak. This is watered down. This is tepid somehow. Um, but by the time everyone was on board, it was super clear what we were doing, why we were doing it, and against the backdrop of how culture was behaving at the time, how amazing it would be. Chloe Williams, account supervisor at Translation, recalls how remarkable it was for the client to take this leap, considering it was such a new relationship. It was our first project working together. First of all, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So, you know, just developing the trust was really important. You know, they gave us a lot of freedom and making a bold statement. They're like, look, if we're going to say something, it needs to be exactly right. It needs to be defiant, true to the brand. We're not going to tiptoe around this topic. We're going to go all in and let's hold hands on this vision and do that together. With Matsukas on board, the project expanded once again. Lena Waith, the actress, producer, and screenwriter who wrote Queen and Slim, came on board to work on the script, and Solange Knowles agreed to do the music. It was suddenly becoming quite the A-list job, and yet, as Ritesh and Steve recall, still they struggled to distill the essence of this rather unwieldy idea into something pointed, something that would connect and be remembered. How do you tell 400 years of history in this short amount of time? Like, how do you even start to synthesize this? Steve, Chaucer, Castro, Molina, you know, there's a lot of really strong black voices. And I think one of the things that we all did is almost take a step back, let them lead, trust their instinct and sort of go with it. But like, how do we bring it all home? We need a governing idea. It was the most fluid thing I've ever worked on. Like we did not, I think even when Melina was with us for a month, we didn't know exactly what it was we were making. So it was it was like this crazy whittling down of getting to that germ or that nugget of what actually became that first sentence, which is, you love Black culture, but do you love me? This would be the second piece of the puzzle. Along with Melina's instinct to celebrate Black life, they would also, in the voiceover and in more heightened imagery, challenge white America to consider the gap between their love of Black culture and their hatred of Black people. It was these two ideas combined, Jason says, that in the end really gave the piece its power. It was one that had to empower you as if you're a black or brown person or someone who's different from the majority. And then it had to challenge at the same time. Those two things are really hard to do and, and to have people hear or listen or feel. And if we had leaned one way or the other, I think we would have probably gone almost like stereotypical in what we were saying. We played the first part of the spot earlier. Here's the rest. And of course, you can watch the whole film at our website, taglinepodcast.com. All men are created equal. That's my favorite part. You hate us so deeply, but you're still so impressed. Why can't you see? There's history in our skin. Built this country on our backs. I'm him. He's me. She. Us. We. Are all black. Black. Power. Power to live right. I got the power. Power. 
or not. We love each other deeply. We gonna be us. We gonna break bread. We gonna defy gravity. You love my culture, but do you love me? What a world that would be. This idea that white America loves black culture, but not black people, is hardly new. Indeed, it's been acknowledged as a truism in the black community for generations. Expressions of this idea were gathering speed in culture throughout 2020, even before the beat spot. For example, this Doritos ad from June. You love our music. You love our culture. But do you love us? Do you see us? Do you hear us now? And this emotional speech in August from Doc Rivers then the head coach of the L.A. Clippers, following yet another police shooting of a black man, Jacob Blake. It's amazing why we keep loving this country, and this country does not love us back. And it's just, it's really so sad. Creatively for Beats, the challenge was to present this old idea in an arresting new way. The VO does a lot of this work. Much of white America surely hadn't heard it expressed quite this bluntly. But the spot also makes good use of its celebrities to break down the divide between black culture and black people. Bubba Wallace, Lil Baby, and Naomi Osaka, they're all seen in everyday life, far from the glamorous worlds of sport and music where they became famous. Celebrating the beauty of that, of the black person at the core, not the entertainment they give the world, was a profound departure from how most ads use celebs. That it wasn't about Lil Baby's contribution in music. It wasn't about Bubba Wallace's, you know, glass ceiling shattering, whatever, what have you. This is about a black man and his car that he loves and wanting to feel safe. And it was about, you know, a young man getting his hair braided and having this ritual that you have with your, your sisters and your cousins at first and maybe later a love interest and whatever. And to really explore that at any kind of depth and present it with that level of patience, I think it was that contrast between the footage and that message. And of course, in that cultural moment that really made it singular. Osaka's appearance in particular is interesting and full of rich detail. The tennis star whose father is Haitian American is seen in a Pierre Moss dress designed by Kirby Jean Raymond who's also Haitian-American. In one scene, she stares at a painting by the Haitian artist Ulrich Jean-Pierre depicting a battle from the Haitian Revolution. And later, she's seen having a traditional Haitian meal with family. It was a side of her that people rarely see, and for Castro, Steve, and Rachel, getting the details just right was critical to the credibility of the piece as a whole. Down to, you know, Naomi's parental figures in the film, you know, they were like real... Haitian, like aunts and uncles. But I think it was important for us to make sure that there was some truth to it, even though they were playing playing roles. You know, I think the food was all real. Uh, (laughs) Even the art department and how they dressed it up. You know, I sent it to my mom through text message for the quintessential thumbs up from her to make sure that like it looked like a traditional Haitian home. We knew that her Haitian side of her family and her identity had never really been expressed in a major way, but we knew that that was a big part of her. And she's an amazing tennis player, of course, but she's also other things. Like there are other parts of her that are equally as important. 
that we got to represent in her spot, down to even the clothing that she's wearing. Likewise, they framed Lil Baby in a different light, without his trademark jewelry, for one thing. You know, that was a big thing. Like, we didn't want to make, we didn't want to capture him as his, as a typical sort of rapper, blinged out self, you know, and just him with some dog tags of his, of his children around his neck. And pen and pad is, is, is like him in, his, in essence, you know, uh, a poet, writer, and then a rapper, second. The celebrities were just one piece of it, though. The other on-screen talent included actors, models, dancers, singers, and several Black Lives Matter activists, including Tandiwe Abdullah, the teenager doing her hair early in the spot, and Janaya Future Khan, who's later seen lighting a white sheet on fire. Not only is it connective tissue to what Janaya does and has been doing with the Black Lives Matter movement, but also it is a little bit more pointed if you just sit and think about it for a second. There was a moment in time where we're like, well, what if it was the American flag that we were burning? And that felt like it was like, maybe that's like, it's strong in a way that we don't have to be. One character, played by the actor and dancer Slim Stewart, is an anchoring presence, appearing across all three acts of the film. Toward the end, he's seen floating upward into the air, one of the spot's most mysterious and haunting images. Which I think was kind of the point. That ascension could be looked at as something negative, it could be looked at as something positive, or it could just be looked at as the truth of the society that we're living in right now. It's a cornucopia of, like, symbolism. Black men standing on horses. What does that mean? What is that hearkening to? There was a undercurrent of uh, monuments Monuments being torn down, and that was happening globally. The burning of a sheet harkens back to burnings and KKK. You know, like, so it was all, it was beautiful, beautiful in how it was done, but it, it, it had rich symbolism. It's not singular. I think what we did, what we aimed to do was sort of like an argument or a, a discussion that usually gets whittled down to simplicity which is usually what advertising tries to do, right? You try to create simple messages. What we did was unpack it. And it was a purposeful unpacking. Melina's work overall kind of speaks for itself. Like she is such a talented director. I would be lying if I didn't admit that I was like a little nervous every time I got into a call with her, just because I, I really admire her work. We would go through this exercise of, okay, we have this one scene, this vignette. If you had to assign one word to it, what would it be? Like, what do you want the viewer to take away from this like one scene? So I think that helped as well us kind of like stitch the story together because to be honest, it was something that was like continuously changing up until we shipped it. And the line in the treatment read, what about just getting your baby hairs just right? The hairs don't go back into a ponytail for generally a young woman. And so they have a tendency to like straighten them out with, with toothbrushes and other instruments and lay them down, just perfect curl and whatever. There was something that was so disruptive about that idea of self-care as an act of resistance, that idea of leaning into a Black identity as a form of valid advocacy of a point of view that I knew, just knowing her previous work, she could capture and I knew would be absolutely explosive for the brand. Some of Molina's compositions hinted not at the joy of black life, but at the violence always threatening to upend it, which was, of course, the impetus for the whole project to begin with. 
How far to push this more pointed imagery was always a question. Castro points to the alleyway scene in particular. In one version of that shot, which wasn't used, all of the men are seen lying down with their eyes closed. A disturbing image in context. Almost like a, a pileup of dead bodies. And it was really, really jarring and tough to watch for everyone. And we were, you know, thousands of miles away, but I'm sure for everyone that was actually on set, um, it was even worse. Uh, and I heard a story recently about one that I didn't even know, which was like a police officer that was playing security, not security on footage, but like security for, for the production. He had a Blue Lives Matter sort of tag on him or a hat or, or, or something on him. And that made like the intention around everything that, you know, they were shooting on set even more sort of uh, necessary. That shot specifically was, was, was tough. Obviously, we're not in the business of selling, selling trauma, so we, we didn't go with that cut. But yeah, that was, that was a tough moment. The visuals, of course, were only part of it. The audio, the voiceover, and the music added so much as well. After the break, we'll hear about the VO sessions with Toby Nwigwe and what Solange Knowles brought to the piece through the soundtrack. We'll also look at how the two remote shoots went down and how the piece was received when it launched, including a 30 TV cut that aired nationally on a very special day, indeed. Once again, thanks to our sponsor of today's episode, GSTV. GSTV recently launched Amplify, a retail media network that helps CPG marketers reach consumers primed to spend in the last mile of the consumer journey. With two in three GSTV viewers shopping on the day they fuel up, Amplify is a solution for CPG marketers to ensure your campaigns are being seen and influencing your consumer's next action. To learn more, visit gstv.com slash amplify. As Beats by Dre went into production on You Love Me in the fall of 2020, there was the hurdle so many advertisers were facing at the time. How to shoot safely pre-vaccines at the height of COVID. In the end, the agency team at Translation didn't travel to either of the two separate multi-day shoots. They monitored everything remotely. As account supervisor Chloe Williams recalls, this was yet another challenge on a project where the stakes were already so high. Working with big talent, making sure they're getting to set, everything's all good. We got lucky in terms of everyone making it safely to set, no health issues. So that was great. But the way we kind of managed it during the shoot days was we went into our office in New York, um, remoted in, and then Melina and her small team were, you know, on set and we had our um, kind of remote video village. With this magnitude of topic, we wanted to make sure every word, every detail down to every garment that our talent was wearing was appropriate, the right designers. Um, We dressed Naomi and Pierre Moss. The painting she's looking at is from the Haitian Revolution. Like every single detail that, you know, maybe in a normal commercial, you're not, you know, belaboring every prop. This was, you know, everything was looked at. So lots of late nights, probably 2 a.m. was the average night that we were working. Everyone was all in on this. So it didn't feel like a chore, even when we were (laughs) having some of those late nights. For the shoot, Matsukas brought on board as DP, Malik Saeed, a revered cinematographer whose credits include a number of Spike Lee films, as well as a host of brand spots, 
including the look for PNG, which we explored last year on this podcast. In the end, Melina and Malik, along with the film's editors, Robert Duffy and Andrew Morrow at Spotwelders, pursued a variety of looks for the different vignettes, from color to black and white, scenes with different grades and aspect ratios. One shot is even rotated a full 90 degrees. To the creatives at Translation, Castro de Woche, Rachel Leathers, and Steve Horn, the resulting mosaic of impressions very much reflected black life itself, in all its richness, anything but a monolith. We're shooting them in different ways to exasperate the point that, you know, we're all together, but we're all from different you know, spaces. So whether we shoot them, you know, 16 or, or full frame or black and white, uh, you know, we're just like taking snapshots of, of different black life. It looks more like, you know, this like beautiful tapestry of like visual executions of film. And I think what black and white brings to any film really is that there's a sense of timelessness to it. You know, you could, especially when we're looking at, for instance, the men who are all lounging together in the alleyway. It could be present day, it could be 20 years from now, it could have been 20 years ago, which I think when you think about that in like a larger conceptual way is also true when we look at the way America has treated black people for all time. And it's something that Melina brought up. I think it was like one of the first times that we talked to her is that a lot of people can view or choose to view black culture as being this like one type of thing. There are all these like layers within the culture and To deny them would just be a lie. It would just be a straight up lie, especially when we look at how much other other groups of people try to piece apart the parts of black culture that they like and use them for themselves. We had the real luxury of clients that trusted us in that during our first shoot, we really didn't even have the locked script yet. The words were still so in flux and what we were doing was still so fluid that we were treating scenes exactly how you said, Tim. Like we knew that this thing was going to say this visually, but it wasn't so perfectly boarded out in a way that we knew where it would fall in an edit. We knew which words it was going to be paired with, but because we were hopefully taking that much attention with each little vignette, we knew that they were going to have a place and a reason to be there. Another big piece of the craft was the audio, the voiceover, sound design, and music. For the VO, they used the rapper Toby Nwigwe, who brought a deep gravitas to Lena Waithe's poetic copy lines. Steve Horn, as the main writer on the agency side, shouldered quite a bit of the work with the VO lines. He recalls encouraging Toby to really make the words his own at the record. In the same way that we tried to give a little bit of carte blanche to like Lena and Melina, I think we said the same thing to Toby, like, how would you say this? There was a real hopeful focus on like, don't let the normal tropes of my dumbass in a recording booth telling you what to say stop you from saying it. Um, Certain words, certain inflections, certain pronunciations, certain just like the way he laughed off certain lines, like what Cass is talking about. Like he just laughed at the constitution. Like that was amazing. We didn't like coach that into him. I do love all men are created equal. That's my favorite part, you know, like as a transition from the first end to the second it just added that sort of um, that sarcasticness that I think a lot of people in the black community have when they see shit that's wrong or unfair. You know, you just kind of have to laugh through the nonsense sometimes. So to have someone like Toby, like really go through it and just say it as a man, you know, as Toby. Yeah, it did, it did wonders for it. 
I, I sat in on his VO recording and once again, like was fangirling in the background. Not only was what Lena wrote poetry more than anything else, it needed to be spoken by someone who gets poetry. And his voice also just like has such a richness to it that was really perfect for the spot as well. For Steve, who is white, working with Lena's copy about the black experience, making it work for the spot without filtering it too much through his own lens, this was tricky. Though Castro says he managed it admirably. He went on literal strike at one point uh, (laughs) to not mess with Lena's words. And he did a phenomenal job in using her words in different ways to like format chapters in the film that we have, you know, like retaining what she, the essence of what made her words so cut through, you know, like, like really impactful language and, and managed to stay out of it as much as he could. It was a literal strike, like physical strike. I saw it <laughs> in the office. It was something. A big part of that for me last year was like truly just shutting the fuck up and listening for a little bit and like not writing, shutting my laptop and trying not to type when my words did not need to be the words that were coming out first and foremost. She, in so many ways, did what I love to do, which is just, here's the words, here's everything I'm feeling. She gave us so much and wrote so much. You cannot say a single thing that allows someone to check out from what they're watching. It needs to be so undeniable and so unlike anything that you've been spoken to in a way that you you don't have an excuse to shut out. It didn't allow people to tune out both visually and in the words. The music was an interesting journey too and a critical one, obviously, for an audio brand like Beats. Translation has always been very music-driven as well, and its connection to United Masters, the music distributor also founded by Steve Stout, brings a rich roster of artists to work on brand projects. For this one, it was Solange Knowles composing the score, with help from a number of collaborators. music was something that was going to be really important, not only to bring these three acts of the long form together, but also to kind of give each of those acts then also their vibe, their own unique vibe, because the vibe does kind of shift as you move throughout. All, all credit to our, you know, one of our context folks and Hugh, Hugh Pringle, you know, he spoke the language. Her first go around was pretty dope. And, you know, we just kind of like tweaked it to picture and picture tweaked to, to music. And it, we played this sort of dance back and forth until we landed at the end. There's things on there like Steve Lacey, this amazing guitar player is playing guitar. There's a scene with the choir and Solange offered up all these different songs that the choir could sing that would make sense with the score and how we go in and out of the score into the choir singing acapella. And, you know, again, it it feels like you can't do this with every project, but you should. One final note about the visuals, and this was important too, they knew the spot couldn't be full of Beats products. Yes, on some level it was an ad, but as Jason Campbell and Chaucer Barnes recall, product very much had to be secondary. If you were saying something this significant, and you were shilling at the same time, you'd be crucified. You would cheapen anything you tried to say. 
And so I think what we what we ended up doing was having it as tastefully done as we could. Melina, I think in part, she's coming off of she had recently done a Kobe tribute with Kendrick uh, for Nike. And I think she didn't appreciate something about the way that that went down. And so there was something that got said that kind of spooked her. Right. She was like, wait a minute, I'm definitely not making a headphone ad here. And I want that to be super duper, duper, duper clear. There are headphones around and there are also moments that lend themselves to projected sound. Right. So like little baby's getting his hair braided uh, in the living room. There's a pill over there because that makes sense for that context. And we had to get really crisp about the role of the brand as opposed to the role of the product. Dang, what is we going? I'm so dumb that I was thinking that they could when they really can't. Yeah. I was thinking that they was when they really ain't. It's my fault, I can't blame no one. If we take off now, we can catch the sun. Maybe watch it sit down, let's get some rest. I'm so dumb that I was thinking that they could. After almost five months in development, Beats by Dre and Translation locked the final film, You Love Me, and set a release date. They knew they'd made something special, though in some ways, of course, that only heightened the anxiety. What would audiences really think? On the morning of Thursday, November 12th, they would find out. I don't want this to sound arrogant. I think we knew it would strike a chord. I had worked on Nike. I had worked on really big things that have, like, you know, Nike's one of those brands where you can... Yeah, the luxury of people wanting to hear what you have to say. Um, and I'd been in moments in my own career where I was like, oh my gosh, this is special. And I told everyone, I said, this thing, you're not going to get this very often in your career. It's pretty special. And when we do it right, and if we do it justice, it will shift something. It will do something pretty, pretty huge. Seeing it all come together was like, it was like, it was chill inducing. It was very like, oh my God, I can finally say that I like did something with advertising that wasn't just selling a product. I think what it did was remind me of why I got into advertising, which was I wanted to take large sums of money and put work in front of people that could maybe change their perspectives on something. We didn't know to the degree in which it would resonate. LeBron talked about it. Journalists talked about it. I think that was the big unlock was that it jumped from ad trades and the normal press release to people just texting it around and seeing it naturally. We knew we had something great, but I think we all breathed easy after the first few hours when we got hands up emojis, praise, you know, hearts, Haitian flags littered all over the comments, people acknowledging the fact that, you know, Beats just came out with a thing that carried the voice of them and all their friends and said something that needed to be said on such a stage. I think we were all floating that day. The rollout strategy certainly helped. It was heavily social first, with Beats eventually getting some 80 of its endorsers and brand ambassadors, those in the film and beyond, to share the work on their own channels. He said, look, this is a message we're putting out. If a message resonates with you, we'd love for you to share it kind of open-ended. They weren't paid to promote it or anything. And we saw over, we saw that group of 80 and others who we didn't even share it with sharing the message on social. So for example, the use of Toby and Wigway as the VO lead in the spot ensured his advocacy when it came to market. So you got 
Little Baby publishing it, every single actor publishing it, every Beats partner coordinated and choreographed and they're publishing of it with their own take. I mean, we were writing even sample copy for different members of the Beats roster, depending on whether they were black, white, young, you know, in sport, whatever, what have you, so that everyone could have a take on this and we could signal to the marketplace that everybody deserves to have a take on this, that while this is from and for black youth, that the moment demands that we all have a reaction there too. My proudest moment certainly was that Nicole Hannah Jones reached out to me privately and said, I've never shared anything that any brand's ever done. I'm so pleased you did this. Uh, And everybody had their version of that, right? So we knew it was working because, not because of what the trades were doing, but because of what our group chats were doing. The work also made it to TV in a 30-second cut three separate times. First during the NBA draft on November 18th, and then during two NFL games the following Sunday night, and most notably on Thanksgiving Day. This placement was particularly special. Thanksgiving is one of the most segregated days in America where people retreat to be with family and where a large and mostly white audience watches a sport in which two-thirds of the athletes are black, in a league that's also been a flashpoint lately for debates on race. In the end, there was no better stage for the story they were telling. That was just a unique canvas for us to really, now that the advocacy that we hope to inspire already lived online, to take it into an environment where it was much less likely to be universally embraced. I grew up in the Midwest where football is everything, right? Like sports are everything. And there are all these people that are like, got tattoos of their favorite mascot on them. Like they like live and breathe it. And these are also the same people who are telling Colin Kaepernick to shut up and play. So I think where the media was for that 30 is also what helped make it really impactful when we got to that point. The 30 cut was creatively different from the long form too. It leaned more directly into the back and forth of you love me, you love me not. It also featured a VO line that's not in the long form. Here's the full audio from the 30. You love me. You love me not. You love me. You love me not. You love me. You love me not. With no spotlight, we all look the same. You love black culture. But do you love me? What a world that would be. In addition to all the love, the piece also got a fair amount of hate. But this didn't bother the team at all. Chloe says they expected some trolling and, in fact, welcomed it in the sense that it was further proof the spot was connecting. So it was really interesting to see all the positive advocates and then the usual kind of trolls and the advocates feeling really strongly back to the trolls in the comments. This wasn't supposed to be a middle-of-the-road sort of statement. We are not a brand that's going to put up a black box on Instagram and call it a day. Like, we're going all in. The film also got plenty of love in the industry and picked up a slew of awards, including a Grand Clio in film, a Titanium Lion at Cannes, and an Emmy nomination. Though to the agency, some other, more grassroots metrics were just as gratifying. One of the things we found when we were, you know, mining through the comments on social was, it was like 40% of people said in the comments they felt seen or heard in the message. But our main metric was 
really just getting the most eyeballs on this as possible. Um, and again, that was achieved through a huge organic splash, of course, paid media and social and digital, and then hitting those tenfold moments. This wasn't going to be an ad that we were running during every game or, you know, once a week or something. Sales, meanwhile, wasn't a primary metric for a brand statement like this, though Chaucer says the work certainly set the stage for sales moments to come. It's the best performance skew in brand history, okay? Query volume was on the rise again. The sentiment was on the rise again. There was a big uptick in kind of consumer embrace and interest in what the brand was doing that we were then able to turn around and show to Target, Best Buy, et cetera, as, hey, look, this thing is somewhat turned around. And so any brand that steps forward and does the thing that nobody else is going to do is going to get that outsized credit. And it was our job later to then turn that credit into loyalty. They did follow it up six months later with a very product-centric campaign called It's the Music for Beats Studio Buds. In those spots, celebs talk up the product's features and then say, it's actually not about that at all. Okay, so Beats has these new earbuds called Beats Studio Buds. They have active noise cancellation, transparency mode, eight hours of listening time, and a ton of other features. But that's not what it's about, you know? It's about Coming Home by Leon Bridges. The soulful, smooth vibes take me back. A warm summer night in high school, no responsibilities, feeling totally free. Ah, now I want to go home. (laughs) It's the music. If You Love Me told the stopping power of culture, Beat Studio Buds campaign told the shopping power of culture story very well. It's about the two minute, 36 second mark in Father Stretch My Hands. It's about when the drums drop out and Otis Redding does that long note. It's about right these, these little tiny moments in music that become the proving ground for whether or not that tech was really in service of the emotion that was intended for you. Growing the business by reviving that cultural heat, this had been Translation's plan for Beats all along. That it happened to come at a time of such upheaval in American history, and that they were able to credibly address that upheaval as part of the brand's journey, this is what made the project so special. Two years after its release, those who worked on You Love Me look back now and remember, more than anything, just how much of themselves they put into the work. How it wasn't just another job, how it went beyond pride in the craft and was about fully believing in and committing to a message. In that sense, it was a rare thing indeed, and fulfilling in a way not many jobs are. I grew up in Jamaica till I was 16, and I am multiracial. Like, I am black, I am white, I'm Indian, like, I'm, I'm all of it. But when I, when I walk down the street in America, I'm black. That's it. I'm simplified. And I've been in this industry for a long time, and I've been the black kid in the room. You know, like in rooms that probably I'm like, why am I in this room? You know, now I run a creative department. There are not many of me. I have three kids, you know, like, as I said, I was taking them to protests. You know, my kid, my, my youngest son has dreadlocks. We know the conversations happening in schools in some parts of America about how you should wear your hair. Like that could affect him. So the, the message was both professionally uh, resonant, but personally resonant. And I, and, I, and I think more than 
anything what I take away from it now is that nobody's going to enter that space or that conversation the same way. Like brands are now forced to, to actually touch a real subject. Or if you're going to talk about this thing, it can't be shallow. That's the kind of collective power we have. Not just like translation or, you know, Melina, like as creative people, as strategic people, doing something and putting messages out in the world. That's, that's kind of the power you have on your best day. I can point to a bunch of things in a trophy case of which I'm as proud, but none of them got an industry reaction the way that this did. And I don't just mean an advertising industry reaction, even in a loss, it's, it's meaningful to get to the Emmy ceremony with this kind of work that reinforces our thesis that, you know, work should be for someone from someone. And that urge that so many marketers have to pop a tent so wide that everyone fits under it or to design something so generic that everybody, you know, can fit it is something that we push against in every pocket of the practice. I've got a picture of my grandmother watching that spot for the first time. And um, it's, it's one of my favorites. It's, it's rare in this business that I'm able to just show my grandmother something and be like, I do that. The asset, the response, and the memories of making it all hold special uh, special places in my heart. And you watch it and it's you're struck by just the beauty and sort of the, the raw nature and the truth that speaks. The process to get to the finished product is my favorite thing. It's something no one will ever see. They'll never see the two, two a.m. nights, the you know 50 versions of decks we have up until the last second, Tim, we were beating up the idea. You know, we never stopped. Everybody threw in because we just wanted to be there. It doesn't tell you how to feel, which I like. If you're getting mad at it, it's more of a reflection, I think, on you than it is about what you're seeing. Sometimes clients ask you when you get a brief, you know, like, this should be for everyone. Our audience is everyone. I'm like, but it doesn't have to be. I can focus on the positive feeling that I get from just one person seeing this and being like, that's me. Like, that's so me right there. Like, I can't believe that brand did that. That's so me. Like, and that just feels so cool. And though I, if I'm being totally honest, I definitely cried a lot. (laughs) I think you hear a lot of times in advertising to stay unemotional about your work, you know, ideas get killed every day. Like, you, you, you don't always get chosen. Your big idea is not always the thing. But I think with a project like this, everyone involved had no choice but to be emotional about it. Because if you weren't, you might miss something. I think what it set up for the relationship with the agency and the brand was that like we still wanted that DNA of you love me to affect things like product campaigns too. Like I think, you know, Cass is now running the Beats account um, and a big part of everything they try to do, even if it is selling product is have a bit of that defiance and, and jutting up against the expected. And I will say it was like the best, it, it sets such a standard of the way you need to approach the work that like, that's at least the goal. I get, you know, I get my first car and I hear McDonald's commercials on the radio and, you know, you, you can obviously tell which is, which are the ones that are geared towards like the black black audience and it sounds like really cringy black voiceovers over you know xx type beat stock hip-hop music 
And it's just like, you could tell no one from <laughs> the community ever wrote this, saw this at all. And it's just like, ugh, just gives you a bad taste in your mouth. I came here to tell stories uh, that I felt were more aligned with my, you know, my existence, my living, you know, my reference points that I grew up watching certain certain things that I resonated with, music that I listened to, all of that. So um, to work on beats is like a, it's like a little dream. I think it's been amazing. I think we've set the stage to create really, really, truly like dope work, you know, casting people the right way, you know, um, using music from from the, from the culture that people actually would listen to, um, you know, it's, it's an intentional word, right? It's like, it's an action word, authenticity. I think we, we make sure that we try to move on it as such. You've been listening to Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. Thanks to my guests this week, Chaucer Barnes, Castro de Woche, Rachel Leathers, Steve Horn, Ritesh Gupta, Chloe Williams, and Jason Campbell. Tagline is a production of Muse by Clio, the content division of the Clio Awards. Our editor is Lane McGibbony. Our theme music is by Brian Englishman. Thanks to the creative agency Gut for helping us promote the show, and a special thank you as well to our sponsor, GSTV. For more about Tagline, and to watch the ads we talk about on every episode, visit taglinepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to listen. I'm Tim Nudd. Thanks for joining me, and we'll be back soon with another new episode of Tagline. This episode of Tagline was brought to you by GSTV. Every day, millions of Americans get in their vehicles and go. Fueling drives commutes, commerce, and connection. And that's where GSTV has the undivided attention of one in three adults every month. GSTV's national video network owns a unique moment for innovative storytelling, when consumers are engaged, taking action today, and influenced for tomorrow. Fuel your next creative campaign with GSTV. To get started, visit gstv.com tagline.